This is Good Faith Effort with Ari Lamb. And here's your host, Rabbi Dr. Ari Lamb. Hello, hello, and welcome to Good Faith Effort, the world's most dangerous Bible podcast, the podcast where we show you how the values and ideas of the Bible can illuminate the most important conversations in society from politics to pop culture and beyond. You know the drill. And today, Good Faith Fam, oh, oh boy. Uh, today's episode, in the immortal words of Ned Ryerson from Groundhog Day, is a doozy. We have with us one of my favorite writers, speakers, podcasters. She's a PhD student in Jewish philosophy at NYU, the creator and host of How to Fix a Soul in 30 Days podcast, so much more besides that. She's Kylie Unell, and we're going to talk about, uh, well, <laughs> we're going to talk about God. So uh, let's set this bad boy up. <laughs> We've just begun talking about the book of Numbers. And I actually want to call attention to maybe the most important invisible feature of the book, and that is that it's actually telling two stories about two different journeys at the exact same time. The first and most obvious story is about the journey forwards to the promised land, probably the most important keyword in the book, which appears dozens upon dozens and dozens of times, is the root nasa, which means to travel in ancient Hebrew. Because the whole point of the book is to record how the Israelites got from point A in Egypt, or just outside of Egypt after the Exodus, to point B on the banks of the Jordan River about to cross into the Promised Land. But the second journey the book narrates is actually the journey backwards, back to Egypt. A numbingly constant refrain throughout the book is the complaint that God has led the people into the desert to die, and, oh, we're so hungry, or we're so thirsty, or, oh, the in-flight service is a little bit slow today, and the Wi-Fi is not working. So it actually would be better if we went back to Egypt, where at least we wouldn't starve. And the Israelites are continuously protesting that they'd rather travel back to Egypt. So the book of Numbers contemplates two journeys— one forwards to the promised land and one backwards to Egypt. And the dramatic tension of the book lies in how Israelite society negotiates the tension between those two values. Should we stick with the comfort of what we know or should we aspire for something better, but in doing so, reach into the unknown? And this is maybe the best possible illustration of the crossroads that American civic life finds itself at right now. We've had this like multi-decade long period where the fashionable belief was that people are at their best when living unfettered lives, things like community, tradition, religion, are mostly just hokey, backward relics of a bygone, much more credulous era. And while the, you know, be yourself, by yourself spirit of like 1970s through 2000s America kind of made us miserable, at least it was safe. Like we know how to do cheap, shallow culture really well. Like we know how to live in American Egypt. But what would our society look like if we aspire to something much greater but scarier? Like, what if we took a chance on commitment to something obligatory, to building community with people we may not particularly like, maybe to believing in God when the fashionable thing is to believe in, like, the universe or whatever, right? What if we dare to journey forwards rather than slouch comfortably backwards? And so to unpack what this might look like, I brought on one of the most just insightful people I've read lately. She's doing her doctorate at NYU in Jewish philosophy. She's a podcaster, top-ranked writer, penetrating thinker. She's Kylie Unell. Kylie, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. I didn't go on a run this morning, and that was like a pep-up. <laughs> really Let's good. go. Let's <laughs> go. So, Kylie, we're going to start small. Is God underrated? Uh, let me pose an even smaller 
question back, what is God? What is God? What does it mean? What does God mean? And I think you said such beautiful things like in your intro. I almost like, I guess like my PhD analytical, let's pick apart the words and the things. <laughs> Wants to like already go to that. By but... the way, th- this is the podcast for it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I, I get... I get really emotional actually hearing about, I was like trying to like, okay, we're going to dab my eyes under here. But the idea of being in <laughs> Egypt, I'd cry far too much, but the being in Egypt and turning back. Oh my God. You're, you're with like a fellow crier right now. So <laughs> okay. like, don't worry. This is a safe place. <laughs> I just, I think I like to be in a, in a place where things are very hard is life. It's all of life. And we're kind of sold a false a false narrative that life is easy or should be easy. And then the hard moments that come on, you're like, whoa, what is this? This can't be life. Life is supposed to be good. And it's so a part of our nature to want to turn back and to want to move back. And I hear that story about the Israelites wanting to go back to Egypt. And I just like, I feel for them so much because I get it. Like I really... I mean, I'm in a space of personal development right now, and it would be so much easier to not move forward than to move forward in a lot of ways because I know it, it's more comfortable, and it's predictable, and I don't know what lay ahead on the path. And so it's not just they didn't have food and these things, but they didn't have their crucial needs being met, and they were being tested and and i think we go through that on a personal level all the time and when it comes to god is god underrated i, I don't know i think everybody grapples with god i don't even think that there's a, like i think it's, it's the like, the highest rated being in the world but people don't necessarily know that they're grappling with it oh i love that so i would say and i alluded to this in the in the intro but if you consume a lot of like contemporary pop culture you get the sense that americans or at least a certain type of American, right, is definitely comfortable talking about a higher power totally. than humanity. But it usually gets, like, abstractified into, like, the universe. That's very popular, right? Like, the universe must really want us to be together or something. So what does that kind of euphemism tell us about American society, good or bad, or both? Yeah, I don't have as much of a problem with the universe. I used to have a much bigger problem with the way it was used, and there's a great Amy Schumer sketch about, with Bill, I think it's Bill Hader, but about like the universe and the universe like took me to soul cycle. I, I'm pretty sure that's what it was, but it was like all these things about like the universe <laughs> and like we meet with the universe and then you have like Bill Nye, the science guy who is like, that's not how the universe works. <laughs> like the universe is saying all these things, but that's not how the universe works. But I think at the end of the day, we don't really know how the universe works <laughs> and we're creatures of habit. And so we like to assign patterns to things and see kind of the habits of the world and attribute that to God. And in some way, I guess what I really want to see is is a deeper engagement with that. So it's one thing to say, oh, the universe is doing that. It's another thing to ask, what does that mean? So I've been doing The Artist's Way lately. I don't know if you know Julia Cameron and The Artist's Way. And one of the things that she talks about is this idea of believing in a higher power, which she's in AA, she's in recovery, like this is critical to that. It doesn't really matter what that higher power is, but believe that there is a force in the universe, in the world, whatever, that's greater than you, that's taking care of things. So she designates this as a creative energy. And it's the essence of all of life that she's essentially serving. And everything she does is a vessel for that. 
And she says, it can be the rolling stones. It can be the stars. It can be whatever it is. And there is some, there is some danger in that. We're warned of that in Genesis. That's what Abraham kind of discovered. People were worshiping the stars. And it turns out they were replacing God with the stars. Like, you can tell me to stop at some point because I can keep going. But go, oh, my God, you're like on a roll. <laughs> well, it's a really interesting thing, the way that Genesis unfurls that story, because I think it's Maimonides, actually, that talks about it. in the oh, Mishnah Let's Torah. go. Let's, let's go. go. <laughs> I'm so in. All the <laughs> listeners are in right now, by the way, too. <laughs> well, in the Mishnah Torah, Maimonides talks about Abraham. And really what it was that happened was that there was a generation in which people worshipped God. Then people worshipped the stars as a conduit to God. And it was still connected. It's like the universe and God are one. When we say the universe wants me to do this, we still mean God. Maybe it's some kind of messenger, but there was still the God connection. Then another generation later, however many generations later, it just became the stars. And the stars became divorced from God. And it's a process. It's a process of going from God to the stars. It doesn't happen overnight. It happens over the course of generations. And, and so Abraham comes along and sees that there's something off. And he wasn't necessarily discovering something new. I think in a lot of ways, and what Maimonides is telling us is that he's returning to old knowledge. He's returning to what was. And so I think what's happening now is we're kind of in that post-Abraham mode right now where people were so divorced from God I think like the 70s might have been the stars are God. And then the 2000s, 90s, 2000s, like this period of time was is just the stars, maybe even nothing. And now we're kind of working our way back up to where it's like the stars are God. We're totally getting to God is God. Like it's, it's so there. And in some ways, I think the universe impulse hits on that a lot. I love this. This is such a great way of laying out the stages. So I want to get to this particular moment in American civic political life, because as you say, and, and I'm 100% with you, and I love the Maimonidean formulation, like we're in that stage now where we've kind of repaganized as a society, but we are now on the way back, or at least the, the potential is there. I, I kind of want to almost unleash you, right? You're, you're such a deep, analytical, and well-trained philosophical thinker, so I want to get some of your intellectual scaffolding in here. So let's back up for a second, and I want to get into the nerdiest space we can get into. Who's a 19th century Jewish philosopher or thinker that you wish more non-Jews were familiar with, and who's a 19th century non-Jewish philosopher who you wish the Jewish community was more familiar with? And by the way, I'm, I'm picking 19th century, but it, you could pick anybody. <laughs> okay. Um, it's a great question. I, I think, I don't know, the first person that comes to mind is Samson Raphael Hirsch. He was the focus of my studies for a while, and I moved away from him. But he has a lot of interesting things to say about man and God. So we're talking... We're talking 19th century German, Jewish, theologian, rabbi, who was this kind of renegade Jew in the 19th century. And he was this guy who had this yearning for Judaism to come back to life. He saw it as a mummified entity that people were holding on to. And he draws a lot from the outside world to revive Judaism. And his whole philosophy is about the Jew being uh, like a, a person, a man, and an Israelite. 
And I think that for non-Jewish audiences, there's a lot to be gained from his ethical view of the world and the way that he views God's method of running the world and force within the world. Uh, I think he's also interesting. I mean, he's very humanistic. So he reads the Bible in a way that is very human. So there are human errors like Isaac and Rebecca favored their children and didn't parent them according to their proper nature. And so Esau, Esau ended up getting the short end of the stick. And because he wasn't, his parents didn't relate to him in the proper way, they didn't cultivate his nature in a way that brought him to be the man of God that he could be in serving the world and humanity and God in the way that he could. And so he really sees human errors in the Bible. And I think it's a really beautiful interpretation of things. And there, I definitely have issues with some of it. But another thing that he says is, communities can come to worship themselves over worshiping God. And people have to leave the communities in order to kind of break them apart and bring them back to what they're here to do and what they're actually here to serve. And so it makes me think of what we were talking about earlier when it comes to people deviating from the norm of how we think of God. I think institutions in some ways are revered more than God is sometimes, and communities are revered for their own sakes far more than God is. I think, I mean, we can get into a conversation about Jewish communities, but God does not come up. God does not have a big place in Jewish communities spanning from, you know, reform to orthodox. So there's a lack of this conversation that's happening. And Hirsch is good to point that out. So that's the Jewish person. Non-Jewish thinker who the Jews would gain from, I think there are so many, but my area of focus is Booker T. Washington and Moses Mendelssohn. So uh, Booker T. Oh my God, I'm so excited. (laughs) Let's go. Booker T. Washington has a philosophy of self-cultivation that really, I'm sorry for the New York noises also in the background. Um, So authentic. Are you kidding me? That's where this, we're all about authenticity on this pod. (laughs) Have a bagel and the truck noises. Um, But Booker T. Washington has this philosophy of self-cultivation and attaining perfection as much as one can in the world that hinges on both the cultivation of one's physical skills and abilities and enlightenment. And there's a lot of parallels between that and German Jewish life and German Jewish figures, particularly Moses Mendelssohn. And Jews loved Booker T. Washington. German Jews in America served on his board. We're talking like the wealthiest Jews. I didn't know this. Can you tell this story a little bit? Yeah, Booker T. Washington had rabbis giving graduation speeches and as early as 1898, like very early on before he was the Booker T. Washington, who we know when he was the guy who ran the Tuskegee Institute, he had Jews in Alabama speaking at his school. They participated in fundraising campaigns. Um, They served on his board and he started one of the most successful school systems for black students with Julius Rosenwald, who was the German Jewish man who started the Sears company. Sears franchise. Wow. So he, yeah, he he worked very closely with Jews. There's a story that Julius Rosenwald's daughters say of when Booker T. Washington came to town to speak at Temple Sinai, um, the big temple in Chicago, which had a huge reform congregation. People were sitting wherever they could outside 
just to hear a word or catch a glimpse of him. Jews. Jews were sitting outside just to catch a glimpse of him. And he ended up not being able to make it, which was a huge disappointment. But <laughs> Classic. <he did. laughs> but Classic people... shul event. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but yeah, people... People were really drawn to Booker T. Washington and saw him as a really important figure. And Booker T. Washington held the Jews in the highest esteem. He thought if there was any community who the black community should look up to, should parallel themselves after, should model, it's the Jews. Wow. I did not know that. That's amazing. So Booker T. Washington, that's a great that's a great pick. Now, I want to get back now to the current moment. So public moral exhortation has really come back in vogue in American public life, like with a vengeance, like in the form of, you know, like diversity, equity, inclusion movement, like the new racial politics, basically. But rather than the explicit religious perspective that you find in older forms of American moralizing, right, like, say, the temperance movement, right? So today's public morality, I think, keeps religion much more muted or implicit, but it's still definitely there, right? We've seen protesters, like, literally topple statues of idols, We've seen allies called to wash the feet of the victimized in public, right? You hear terms like justice and sin and other words you're much more likely to hear in church than say in Congress. So my question to you would be, how would being more explicit about God in our lives, both his expectations for us and his very presence, how would that or should that affect how we think about identity politics, like one way or another? Great question. I guess I push back on the idea that we can talk about God and, and what I really want to do with my work, and I don't know what form exactly that will take, but is to open up the conversation around what God is. Because I think we can assume, and I've assumed for most of my life, because I had a very personal relationship with God that I understood God, but the sad, unfortunate truth is that that idea changes over time. And I think it's supposed to change because God is so much bigger than us that the idea that I had from, you know, three until 25 is probably going to change as my life changes and as I change, my ideas change. And so I think the reason that identity politics and the justice movement has captivated so many minds and hearts is because we're not grappling with God. We're not asking the questions it's not that we have definitive answers. It's not that it should be that we talk about God and say God has a place in society because what is God? Like it just, it's not, it's not immediately clear to me what God is and how do you square that with the reality of tragedy and things that happen. And these are really uncomfortable things and it's a lot safer and more comfortable to transmute that and to instead focus on the evil transgressors who mispronoun somebody or like the things that you can grab onto and take that religious impulse and put it onto something else. And I think it's a problem with the religious system that we've come into. I, I think denominationalism is an incredibly human thing. It's a reaction to the world, this idea that there is a movement that has truth and the other one does not is incredibly human. That, you know, Protestant Christians or Reformed Jews are lower or no less or farther from God than Catholics or Orthodox Jews is like the most human thing in the world. And so ultimately, I think the barriers that we create between people end up creating this kind of sub movement of people who don't really feel like they fit anywhere because religion has become so split up into categories of where you fit and where you don't, which is so counter to what religion actually is, um, or maybe not religion, but what worship of God and belief in God actually is. 
that people are looking for a movement that fits them. So I think if we open it up outside of the movements that we think about, we would actually grab more people. We would actually find find more people in our midst because they wouldn't be searching for, I mean, I'm kind of coming up with this on the fly, but I think because because everything has been so split up into movements, people just created their own new movement. And that's what it is. I think it's a religious movement. One of the Bible's most revolutionary ideas is that humans are created in the image of God. And it's an idea with vast implications for humanism, for justice, for how we think about the world. And it's obviously been interpreted in so many different ways, which we won't be able to do justice to on a, you know, on like five seasons of a podcast, let alone in a single episode. But when you think about just the idea, humans are divine image bearers. How does that influence the way you think about the contemporary moment? I think it's really hard. <laughs> I think it's really hard to hold that in mind as you go through the world. I think it's an ideal. It's only God could come up with such an idea in some way or some person who's <laughs> under the influence of something very high because it's not like it's not the human way. Like as a as a weak person, as as a person, we're inclined to see not even inclined. We we see people through the lens of our experiences and so it's something to continuously strive for and it's like an idea to keep in mind. It's the striving point. It's for me, it's how I wish on a good day to see people that I encounter, especially living in New York City. People are crazy here. And really, the, where, where the culture's <laughs> at, where the world's at right now, it's so pain-filled. And so it's like accessing, it's what Rebbe Nachman calls the Nikuda Tova, like the good point within every person. Every person has a good point if you can focus on that good point you can like illuminate their entire souls and then it brings out the good point in you. But I think it's the ideal to strive for. I like, I admit wholeheartedly, I don't do it on a regular basis. Like it's not, it's not how I go through the world. I I love that idea though of like, you can, you can so easily go around and observe any human and see that they're venal and selfish and they fall short. And even the best ones fall short of our expectations and divine images in that respect, like a crazy idea. Right. It's because <laughs> it's so often used as sort of like like sort of a, a synchronon of human rights, which I think it also is. Right. And it should be right. Like, of course, everybody has a divine image. It's the one thing we all have in common. But I, I love the idea that it's also something like vaguely absurd that we should be that we should thank God that God told us about. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that we're striving towards. And and also it's people are mirrors back to ourselves. So I, I think that's actually what Rabbi Nachman's saying and like seeing the good point in every person it causes you to see the good point in yourself. And if you're striving to see everybody or as many people as you encounter as being created in the image of God, that's going to reflect back to you. And I think the only way to really do that is to see yourself in that image. It's easier to look at other people to some extent and have it kind of ripple back to you. But it's with the goal, I think, of seeing yourself in that way because it's like a lens. It's how you see the world. What role should doubt play in a healthy religious life? It's like asking what role should blood play in the human body. <laughs> like oh it my exists. God. <laughs> yeah. It, it the role that it plays is it exists. Like you acknowledge you have blood, you acknowledge that you have doubt. I don't know if there's a particular I don't want to like assign it like a, a role. Yeah, I think we should just be honest about the fact that we all have that we all have doubt. And that sometimes we act on that doubt too. Like it's it's one of the things that I wish people would do more of 
is humanize the religious experience and talk about the not only the moments of doubt, but the the actions that came from that. Because oftentimes it comes with some kind of action or that time where you, I don't know, if you're an Orthodox Jew and you keep kosher, where you, you were tempted to try the non-kosher wine or the whatever. Like everybody has those moments. And I used to run this project called Models of Faith and hopefully someday I'll bring it back. But it was a, a photo blog where I tell people stories who believed in God of different religions. And I would ask Orthodox Jews to be a part of this project and they would say, oh no, I can't do that. I'm not a model. I'm not a model of faith. And it was really, it was the people who were reared in it who felt so guilty about what they weren't. The reason I ask is because I have this very strong memory of, so we had a family member growing up, wonderful, really wonderful man, kind, sweet, but particularly as a a younger man and then kind of well into his middle age, was like a deeply (laughs) committed skeptic. Uh, and was very, very uh, fond of kind of rubbing rubbing it in the face of his of his more kind of traditionally or very traditionally observant relatives, you know, that he didn't believe and didn't and kind of didn't accept any of the the consequences of belief. And he particularly would kind of thumb my grand my grandfather, as I've talked about on the podcast many times, my teacher, a wonderful man, one of the great theologians of the twentieth century. So this relative would really like thumb my grandfather's nose in it. And I remember, as this relative got older, I started to see him come to prayer services and then he might even lead the prayers. And like, I started to see him kind of do more of the things that you would expect from someone growing up with the background that I had. And I, I remember asking my grandfather about it. And he said to me, you know, cousin so-and-so is the kind of person who now in his old age is starting to become slightly afraid that God might be real. Um, And I loved the image because it's such a reversal of like the classic, you know, like the doubting Thomas or the, you know, or the, the Jew struggling with faith or the, or the Muslim struggling with faith or whatever. I love the idea of the, the doubting skeptic or even like the doubting atheist, like someone who's really committed to a world in which God doesn't exist, but has this niggling fear that perhaps there's something they don't understand about the world. And I feel like that's such an interesting way of thinking about the moment that we're in in society. Like, uh, is it even worth talking about a moment where like we've so conditioned ourselves, you know, from the, the 70s through the 90s and like the early 2000s that that of course this is like God is sort of like a dispensable hobby that people have. And it's sort of this, you know, quaint area of interest for folks who who aren't as sophisticated. But I feel now, like, especially when you take a look at pop culture, you know, you take a look at the, you know, like the NBA finals just ended. And the very first thing, so the, the interviewers interview Steph Curry, finals MVP, for those of you out there who are sports fans, the very first thing he says is, I want to thank God. Then they interview Andrew Wiggins, one of the best, play, you know, one of the pivotal role players in the, you know, uh, on the Warriors. And the very first thing he says is glory to God. And now those are two religious folks, Steph Curry and Andrew Wiggins. But I love the idea of someone who doesn't care at all about this watching the television and being like, oh, is there something to this? Like, is how do you think about doubt in the context of a, a skeptical or skeptical is the wrong word like someone who just doesn't make space for god in their life or who doesn't even feel that there's a space that needs to be made room for right just god doesn't occur to them as a thing what role does doubt play when you're going in the other direction i mean i think when you think about athletes it makes total sense that they would 
prayed to God that God would have a space in their life because doubt is so a part of the game. Like everything in some way is left up to chance. Like you work really hard and you know that you can show up, but then some days you have bad days and some days you have good days. And God is such a strong part of, of people's lives when they live in that gray zone. And I think I push back against the idea that like doubt doesn't play a role in the life of religious people. Not that that's necessarily what you're saying, but when I think about doubt in the place of like the person who doesn't have the clearest idea of what God is, I think if we're all honest with ourselves, none of us really have the clearest idea of what God is. And if we push ourselves kind of far enough in our own personal interrogation, we really come to that point where we're like, I don't know philosophy is made up of a lot of people who think about what God is because there's no clear conception of what God is. So when it comes to doubt, I think there should be equal levels of doubt in some ways on both sides. And maybe it's doubt about what form God takes in the world or what role God plays. And I'm really certain that I have a personal relationship with God, but there is still doubt. So I don't know if I'm really answering your question um, or just talking, but I don't know if there's some unique role that doubt has to play in the life of a skeptic. In some way, I think that we should all be a little more humble and and grapple with doubt more openly. It's such a wonderful reflection, and it, it actually makes me think of, of a question I've been wrestling with just it kind of intellectually recently, and that, that there's a trend in American intellectual and policy circles that like draws from economics, evolutionary psychology, and a couple of other fields that's kind of coalesced around the idea that religion is wrong and whatever claims it makes about the world or, you know, or about truth. But ultimately, religion is good for society, right? Like either it keeps communities together or it's a good way to get our birth rates up or what have you. So we should be happy if more people are religious. So for people who actually, you know, do believe in this whole religion thing, Right. Like, how should we regard the social engineering case for religion? And what I hear kind of in your answer, although I could be wrong about this, uh, um, but what I hear is almost like a third way. Right. And one that doesn't reject the other ways. Right. Like there's a there's a case that's like religion. Who cares what it is and who cares what it believes? It's just good for society. And then there's another way that says religion is is its truth claims right and that's so you know the truth claim is what's important about it and then there's kind of a third way which again is not mutually ex exclusive with the other two that sort of says well you need to look at this from like a human and experiential perspective like what's your experience of this right so let's how do you relate to like the social good claim for religion yeah i think i in some ways the way that the world is evolving and the expansiveness of our world, right? Like with phones, with technology, the, the move towards just larger scale kind of communities or being more in touch with people has me feeling in this moment, like religion is important for the people who are called to religion, but it's not necessarily the way that needs to be for everybody. I'm writing a paper right now on Spinoza, on Baruch Spinoza, who's a 17th century Dutch philosopher, and it's on wonder. And Spinoza completely rejects wonder. Spinoza's a rationalist. He believes in God, He, I would argue. He believes in, in God, and God is the totality of nature. Everything in existence, in the universe, every idea is an expression of God. God has no free will. 
God exists necessarily because like everything is God. God is everything. There is no God is choosing to do this and moving the world in this way. There's no end goal. There's no teleology, but everything is God. Now in that, in his philosophy, in his paradigm for the world, there is no wonder. Wonder is the thing of ignorant fools, he says. The educated man does not wonder. Now, in the 20th century and on, and long before that, philosophers, Aristotle said wonder is the beginning of philosophy. In 20th century, scientists and educational scholars, scholars of education, pedagogy, see wonder as being critical to the development of a global consciousness, environmentalism, um, appreciation for the world, awe of the world is what cultivates an ethical mind, a moral mind. And so I'm arguing that Spinoza's idea of wonder, the way the reason he rejects it is because of the religious society that he was in where religious authorities had so much power. But really what we need is wonder. We need to look at the world in awe, not take a picture of it when you when you pass by something beautiful, but really like ogle at it, awe, be in awe of it, which does not necessarily need to be in the framework of religion. I think religion can be, religion is really important. And when people have families, it gives you structure and it gives you, it gives you a, a, a built-in community. But I think where we're at in the world right now, people need to start with wonder and awe at base and then kind of build up from there. I think religion is such a big word. And so I don't, I don't accept that it is the inherent good simply because it is. Amazing. Okay. So last question. So you are a philanthropist. And you have, and money is no object for you. Soon to be. Right, exactly. Well, you're, well, as soon as, as, soon as you finish that PhD. <laughs> <laughs> my, fa my father was a philosophy major in college and he had a sign, he may still have it, that says philosopher by appointment only. And I really <laughs> like so resonate with that. Like, I love that. Um, I felt that way, but it's kind of getting my doctor. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, not not unlimited money, right? But like you're kind of like one of the top philanthropists and you can put your money towards a project that's doing social good. And the idea is you don't want to replicate something that's already being done well, right? So like you could try to identify, you know, the most needy people in the world and give them like, you know, basic supplies and food. But like there are people who've who are on that and doing that at least relatively well, yeah. right? You're You're trying to kind of add some value in a way that, either nobody or very few people are adding value well. What's your move? Uh, identity, it's like the first words that come to mind are like identity-free spaces, but like spaces that exist that are social and deep and have deep and meaningful events and content and stuff where people are not their identities, where people are not, like you can walk in, you can be transgender, you can be black, you can be Asian, you can be white, you can be whatever. And in that space, you are not you're, you're not how you present. Like we actually see the soul. We connect to people based on the soul. We grapple with basic human, not basic human questions, but the biggest human questions. It's spaces where humans gather as humans. I don't know what exactly that looks like, but I don't see really anybody doing that. Everything is political. Everything is your gender identity, your sexual identity, your race identity, everything is everything is boiled down to, almost everything is boiled down to identity or at least has a charge, an identity charge when it comes to it. And so I, I want like inclusive spaces 
in the truest sense that don't fit any label. They're not religious spaces, but we talk about God. They're not educational spaces, but we learn ideas. Like these kinds of things that are that are truly, truly inclusive in the deepest sense and really show to the world that these things that everybody thinks matter don't matter, at least in here. In this space, we're all people. We are all suffering with the same questions. We're all suffering through the same pains. We're, we're all trying to get out of bed every day and then get back in bed and trying to fall asleep. <laughs> like we're all going through the same things. And for if it's even an hour a day, we don't have to be defined by the categories. The Institute for the Divine Image. I love it. <laughs> that's, that's so good. <laughs> That's such a good answer. <laughs> Kylie, you are amazing. Thank you so much for being on. Thank you. Here's what this conversation made me think about. So this past Saturday, the Sabbath, or Shabbos as I'd call it, I was at prayer services in my synagogue and the guy leading the prayers who happens to have a beautiful voice starts singing one of my favorite melodies for one of the prayers. And like the whole congregation joins in and people start harmonizing. And it was just one of those things where there were like an unusual number of people in the room with great voices who understood melody. And so the harmonies are gorgeous. But the amazing thing was it wasn't planned. It wasn't like the synagogue hired a singer and a choir or whatever. It just came out of nowhere, this sublime moment. And I started to cry. I mean, <laughs> I don't even know why. It was just perfect. And I felt I experienced something of God in that moment. Now, this wasn't religion as social good. I mean, there are plenty of places you can hear great moving music. And it wasn't religion as ultimate truth. I mean, there's certainly no doctrine in my religious community that says thou shalt enjoy the singing on Saturday. This was just the experience of something transcendent that called me forth to obligation. And it was something inside of me that resonated with something larger and greater outside of me. And honestly, it was a moment that I'm still not sure I understand, but that lack of understanding, that ineffable mystery, that wonder, as Kylie put it, is something I think we'd all benefit from experiencing more. And that's my prayer for us. Let's get that mystery. Let's get that wonder. Anyway, thanks so much for listening. And if you enjoy the pod, then please be awesome. Head into Apple Podcasts or iTunes or anywhere you get your pods and give us a rating. Five stars only. Because it really helps people find the show. Anyway, this is Ari Lamb making a good faith effort. I'll see you next time. Good Faith Effort was created and written by Ari Lamb. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice because it really helps others find the show. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. The show is produced and edited by Galad Brownstein. This is a Soul Shop podcast presented by B'nai Zion. Follow us on Twitter at GFaithEffort. Follow Ari at Ari Lamb and sign up for our email list at soulshopstudios.com slash goodfaitheffort. For more information about Soul Shop, follow Soul Shop on Twitter at Soul Shop Studios and on Instagram at soulshop underscore studios. And check out soulshopstudios.com 